0: Good morning. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for this time that we have uh, together today in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you um, have provided for us this treasure of truth. And Lord, as we open your word today, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and, and give us understanding of it so that we can not only understand it, but Lord, rightly apply it. We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am not a morning person, even though I've always wanted to be. Just ask some of these dear brothers who have roomed with me on mission trips. Um, Had the Lord not created coffee, I'm not sure how my family would have dealt with me over the past Many years. However, uh, when I do manage to get up early enough in the mornings, one of the things with coffee in hand, one of the things I love to see is a good sunrise. Anybody with me? Anybody like to see a good sunrise? Some of you, even when you go to the beach, you're like one of those over aggressive people that get up early in the morning, you go down to the, the beach, and you just wait for the sun to rise, right? Unless you're on the Pacific, that doesn't happen, right? Is that how that works? Something like that. Um, but, you, you know, it's just a, it's an amazing thing. There's nothing quite like that dark early morning sky slowly giving way to the emergence of that pinkish, orange, reddish light that just begins to emerge. We call that dawn, right, or twilight, whatever terminology you use. So that the breaking of dawn is, is really an announcement that the sun is on its way, it's, it's coming, it's, it's really it's, it's on its way over the horizon. You don't quite see the, 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 the ball in the sky yet, but because of the light, you know it's soon to come. Right. So when I'm able to see that, I'm grateful that I'm able to see such a beautiful display of the glory of God, the heavens declare the glory of God uh, in the mornings like that. And, and it's a beautiful announcement that we are able to see on occasion well when we approach the bible we can think of it much like a sunrise the rising of a sun we talk about the the scriptures often by using terminology like progressive revelation god revealing himself over a period of time through these 66 books that we have in the old and new testament when you think about the bible You should not think about the Bible as a collection of randomly chosen books that have nothing to do with each other, but rather you should understand the Bible as one unified complete story from beginning, Genesis, to the end in Revelation. It all fits together and it all has to do with the coming of Jesus and what he did to provide us salvation. We can summarize the storyline of scripture in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God created the world, it was good. Man, created in his image, rebelled against him, the fall into sin, God's work of redemption to bring about salvation for his people and that consummation, that day that we await when he will make all things new and bring his kingdom in its fullest form and its complete form for his glory forever. Well when you think about dawn, at early twilight, before the sun arrives in its full-blown glory, the dawn of God's story begins to emerge right here in Genesis chapter three. After the fall happens, you begin to see the, the dawning of hope. Right here in the, in the midst of all of this, this darkness and all of this corruption that's taken place, there is this dawning, that, 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 this dawn that takes place here, and it lasts. It's a long dawn, right? It lasts until the Son, Jesus, the S-O-N, emerges fully in the New Testament when redemption would be accomplished. Well, today marks the, what we often call the celebration of Advent, Advent meaning just simply the arrival or the coming of the Messiah. We talk about the second Advent, when he will come again, the second coming of Christ. We celebrate Advent, his first coming, when he came into the world as Messiah to bear the, 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 the punishment we deserve for our sins. The New Testament records the events that include his coming. Right? We get to the Gospels and we see Jesus born, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ministry as he calls disciples and sends them out. But long before the Gospel of Matthew, long before the Gospel of Mark and Luke and John, we have a clear testimony to the certainty Of his coming. Just as the dawn promises the imminent arrival of the sun in the sky, the Old Testament promises the arrival of God's Son who did come to bring us salvation. And so that's what we're going to do for these next four weeks through Advent. We're going to actually spend time in the Old Testament looking. At what I'm calling "light in the shadows." And that's, that has a range of meanings, depending on how deep and, and uh, involved you want to get with that. certainly light in the darkness of shadows. But, but even there are shadows of gospel presented all the way through the Old Testament. We're just going to hit four of them, maybe five, depending on Christmas Eve. And so we're, we're going to just look at a few of these, these shadows, if you will, of, of gospel announcements. In the Old Testament, as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. So today, we are going to begin with the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you; in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a long account. After God had created the world, all that was in it, we have this scene of a garden, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in the garden tending to the garden. And then then the fall, the arrival of the serpent, the deception, choice to disobey God's word. As we consider this passage, I want us to make several observations, three in particular, about what is being revealed here. And I want us to end on, uh, on this note of, of promise that God gives us, even here in Genesis chapter three. Let's walk through this text together. We're going to look at a, a rebellion. We're going to look at a response, and then we're going to look at, number three, a promise. A rebellion, a response, and a promise. Let's look, number one, at the rebellion. We see this primarily in verses 1 through 13, the rebellion that takes place. When God created the world, he created everything in it, good. And when he made man and woman, the pinnacle of his creation, he called it very good. Good. So you have a perfect God, a perfect world, and perfect people. Wouldn't that have been the day? Perfect God, He's still perfect. A perfect world, that has been uh, messed up, and perfect people. None of those exist anymore. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, I mean, you're just thinking, what a glorious picture. What what an amazing thing that God did in His creation. But then you come to chapter 3. Here in chapter 3, things take a drastic turn for the worse. A serpent appears. Now, before this, you recall, if you read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, that God's voice, God's word, had been responsible for creation. God spoke, and it came, things came into being. God speaks, he creates. It was his voice that speaks creation into existence. But now, another voice enters the scene. And it's this voice that has a clear agenda, ultimately to spur on a rebellion against the creator. Chapter 3 documents what we often refer to as the fall, the fall into sin. When sin entered the world and man and woman fell from their original state of perfection. There are two things that you and I should consider about the fall as we move through this text. Number one, note the strategy. There's always a strategy involved. So you, you see the, the serpent is not just another voice in the narrative, but he has a particular focus in mind. Therefore, he has a, a strategy. He, he's there to lead the woman and the man away from trusting and believing God trusting in and believing God, specifically the word that he had given them. Watch how this unfolds. Just a couple of things here. We could really unpack this, but just a couple of things for you to see this. First of all, you see how God's word, he creates doubt. God's word is doubted. The the serpent tempts them. He he fosters this, this doubt. Look at chapter three, verse one. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He, he questions God's word. He, he poses doubt in, in, in Eve's mind. Well, did God actually say this? And he, he begins to cast doubt upon what God had said. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, it is stupid to think. That when Eve had looked at the tree, she gradually became inflamed with the desire to pick the fruit until at last, overcome by her desire, she brought the fruit to her mouth. And then this is what Luther says. For the chief temptation was to listen to another word and to depart from the one God had previously spoken. Friends, the issue here was, the root issue was whether or not Eve would believe God's word or whether or not she would not believe it and listen to another word. I mean, how often do we do this? I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? We, we know what God had said. We, we affirm the truth of what God says into our lives through his word and yet we often turn a deaf ear towards it and an open ear to something else. We could give Many illustrations of this. Many illustrations of how we do this. We we are so quick to listen to another word except for God's word. We do it all the time. How often we find ourselves doing exactly what Eve did. We listen to another authority and find ourselves quickly moving away from God's authority. We begin to doubt The validity of his word. Not only is God's word doubted, God's word is distorted. His word is distorted. Eve had the prime opportunity to set the serpent straight. And it may seem like she did initially. If you're careful, but if you're careful, you see that, that she's doing something a little different. She had the prime opportunity to set the serpent straight concerning what God had said, but she doesn't. Instead... She revised God's word a bit by removing some things from it and adding some things to it. She even added restrictions to his judgment. For example, God never said to her, neither shall you touch it, but she added that piece. But friends, we do this too, don't we? We either overstate or understate things even God's word depending on how it will benefit us in the particular situation we might find ourselves in but then you have the serpent who comes along in verse 4 the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil serpent here denies two important doctrines. Number one, the justice of God, the judgment of God. He denies the fact that God is just and says God won't judge you for this. And number two, he denies the goodness of God. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to to know he's not good because he's he's holding something back from you. And so God's word is, is completely distorted at this point. The serpent leading the way and Eve even now Through the deception, starting to move away from the clarity of God's spoken word to her. But then God's word is ignored. Now, when you read this account, it's amazing to me. It hits me every time I I read this account. There's an important question we should be asking Where in the world was Adam? Not where's Waldo, right? Where's Adam? Where is this guy? Well, he appears in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was a desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Next phrase. Who was with Adam had been there the entire time. Standing, watching, all of this unfold and never said a word. The proof of that is that it says that he was with her. Also, when the serpent addressed Eve, he addressed her with a plural "you." In English, we don't we don't see singular and plural in our word you, but in Hebrew, there's a, there's a distinction. This word you, the pronoun, is a plural you. Kent Hughes, in commenting on this text, he said, everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. Everything was upside down. God's word at this point had been completely ignored, completely abandoned, and here they are. The results? Well, there's immediate impact. Once the man and woman took the fruit and ate, for the first time, God's perfect creation now had the stain and marring of sin. Perfect creation now fallen. And immediately we see the result, take, we see the impact of this in, in the way Adam and Eve respond. Number one, they, they respond in fear and in shame. Never had they been afraid before. Never before had they known shame. Now they both knew fear, shame. They, they were afraid. So they sowed fig leaves and made themselves clothing I don't know how comfortable those things are, but that's what they did. They sewed these fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, we're told. Because this is the way of sin. It exposes us, and it, re- it results in, in us responding in fear and in shame, and instead of running to God, enjoying his fellowships, we run from, from him. So, what sin does. But then there's number two, the, the blame. The blame game takes place. It's almost comical when we read verses 12 and 13. The reason it's comical is because all of us have done this. We can relate. The man said, when God confronts him, the man said, hey, this is the woman's fault. Notice who Adam blames. The woman whom you gave me. Adam doesn't just blame Eve. He blames God. Did you get that? It's the woman you gave me. Bad idea. Don't ever blame God for your sin and disobedience and rebellion. The woman is confronted. She said, The serpent deceived me. It's the serpent's fault. So Adam would rather blame God and his wife for his failure than stand accountable for his own sin. And Eve would rather cast blame to the deceptive servant than acknowledge, than acknowledge her own disobedience. I mean, we're, we're good at this, aren't we? It's always easier to blame someone else for our failures. Happens every, every time I, most every time when I'm counseling with people, especially in, in marriage conflicts, it's always the other person's fault. There's always blame going on. I mean, I do this. It's a whole lot easier to blame my kids for my frustrations than to take ownership of my own frustrations. So here, in one act of human defiance, there was one law God gave, and it was now disobeyed. This one act of human defiance, and an entire creation that was pronounced originally very good, was now filled with sin and under a curse. One act. Nancy Guthrie said it this way, the joyous dance of creation now became a dirge. But there's a response. Verses 14 and 15, immediately after confronting Adam and Eve there in the garden, God gives them their sentence, just as he said he would. In fact, he hands out. Three judgments or three curses. We see that here in verse 14. First, the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. That's why most of us hate snakes, right? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the serpent, then the woman. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman to the woman he said, I surely will multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire for, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. She receives the curse there. Childbearing, pain, and reversal of roles because of that, uh, that's, that's going to be an issue. Verse 17, and now to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all Uh, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God hands out the punishments. He hands out the sentence. Not only that, you keep reading in verses 20 and through 24, they were banished from the garden. Instead of living in paradise with plenty of food, Adam and Eve and their descendants would now live on the earth that was now under a curse. God reminds them in verse 19 that they would die. Even though they would live what we would consider a, a really long life, 900 some years for Adam, they would still die. And Friends, this is the reality we all face. Being the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We have all rebelled against him. Romans 5 verse 12 makes that clear. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's us. It's a problem we all have. All sin all deserve God's judgment. Why is this fitting? Because God is holy and God is just. He's right to give us what we deserve. But, even though this passage is filled with deception with temptation with with sin with judgment even though the darkness seems to dominate this scene there's a bit of light that emerges on the scene the the breaking of a dawn if you will is here you may be scratching your head thinking well, where where do you find that at this is all bad what well, we find right in the middle of God's judgments, he gives a promise. Right in the middle, when God is, is judging the serpent and Adam and Eve, he also responds in grace, which leads me to the number three, the promise. In Genesis 3, 15, we read this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, it's also the Hebrew word seed, and hers. He, who's he? The seed, the offspring, singular. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This, is, this, this verse has often been referred to as the first gospel. Even though Adam and Eve had just turned their backs upon their creator even though they fell for the the deceptive lure of the serpent and cast aside God's word, even though they were banished from this perfect paradise and eventually would die, God gives a word of promise and hope. Friends, you don't have to wait to John 3.16 to find the gospel. You can find it in Genesis 3.15. As glorious as John 3.16 is, Great text, right? But it's, it's here. In Genesis 3:15, the breaking of that dawn, the shining of a light in the midst of this brokenness, a promised seed, meaning there would be one, and this seed is a man, He. He will bruise your head. From this point forward, even though the darkness would still be present, there is this expectation and anticipation of this coming one, this coming seed, this coming offspring, who would do damage, who would bruise, and the New Testament says crush the head of the serpent. He says there will be enmity, there will be this long strife of battle between good and evil, if you will. It would seem that oftentimes evil would prevail even as Jesus was hanging on the cross, because Jesus is the seed that Genesis 3.15 is talking about. Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, it would seem at that point as if evil had prevailed. But It was right in the midst of that cross that Christ was doing his conquering work. The serpent had bitten the heel of Christ, but He would ultimately crush His head. Lays the foundation. Genesis three fifteen lays the foundation for that day when Jesus would come to accomplish the rescue that all of us need. Galatians four verse four talks about that. It says, "But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. Born of woman, this woman, all her descendants, born of woman." Born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Then Romans 5 verse 17, if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Not only does Genesis 3 shine a ray of light into a very dark reality by pointing us To this promised seed, it also foreshadows, if you will, how God would rescue. You you see a little hint of that, even in verse 21, where it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Which required the killing of an animal, shedding of blood, so that they could be clothed. Do you see that picture? Does that sound familiar? Genesis 3. Kent Hughes again, he says it is clear from Genesis 3.15 that this is a sovereign work of God conceived and executed by God alone. It was a work that Adam and Eve would never have conceived of because it involved the unprecedented taking of life. Their self-made attempts to cover themselves with inadequate fig leaf loincloths were replaced by clothing made by God. As the Old Testament sacrificial system would be established, there would be no priest who would be able to read Genesis 3.15 and not make the connection with atonement. The Bible teaches that even though, because of our sin, because of our sin in Adam, because we are under the curse of sin, God pledged to rescue us from such a curse. And that's exactly what we find in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Cause of the fall, there's a curse. You see the curse is pronounced. There's a curse on this world. There's a curse on us. But here's what God said he would do, and this is what he did. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We are under a curse. The law only intensifies that curse because of, of who we are as sinners, unable to keep God's law. And, and we're told that Christ, as he died in our place, he becomes a curse. Absorbing the judgment and wrath God gave him for our own sin. Brothers and sisters, God is telling us right here in Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible, that He is good. And even when we presume upon His goodness and turn our backs against Him and choose our own way, forsaking Him, He is still willing to extend grace to us by providing a seed who would ultimately be his own son, who would come and deliver us from the curse. In Revelation chapter 21, the last book of the Bible, John presents us with a picture of the new heavens and new earth and then details even the new Jerusalem. And then he says, there will be no more nights there, no more darkness Literally. And then in Revelation 22, he goes on in verses 1 through 4. And this is what he says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And listen to what he says next. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. The curse that began in the garden due to the rebellion of Adam and Eve that was only magnified and intensified through the giving of the law and our inability to keep it, satisfied as Christ became a curse for us, lays that foundation for that coming day when the consummation happens, when all things are created new, when there will no longer be anything accursed. Paradise that was lost will be paradise that is restored once again. As Genesis 3 presents us with our greatest problem, but it also gives us our greatest promise. That there would be one who would come and he would crush the head of a serpent. And as a result, give all who would trust in him everlasting life, free from the curse forever. Praise him. Praise him for what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that all throughout your word we find our hope, we find our confidence. Lord, even here in Genesis 3, even in the first book of the Bible, right after creation, right even in the midst of such terrible rebellion. God, you are a God who loves to redeem. God, it might be this morning that there are people in this room, they find themselves relating very well to Adam, to Eve, because they've bought into the deception, they've bought into the lies, and they've abandoned you, they've sought their own way, they've tried to do their own thing. God, maybe they find themselves sitting here today convicted that they are a sinner and before you they stand condemned. They realize, left to themselves, they have no hope. God, would you show them? Would you show them that their only hope is found in this promised seed that did come? The Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived a life of perfection and yet died on the cross for our sin. For the same guilt that they feel right now because of their burden, because of their sin. Jesus died to bear your judgment for them. God, would you help them to see Jesus as their their hope, their rescue? God, would you give them the ability that Open their eyes and give them the grace to to trust in you. To cast aside all of their their attempts to clothe themselves. And Lord, to cast aside all of their effort to try to reconcile themselves with you, God. Would you help them to realize that their only hope is to trust. To trust in your provision. To realize, Lord, that you are the one that took it up on yourself to pave the way by sending your own son to be that ultimate sacrifice, to be the one who would shed his own blood so that we could be cleansed of our sins and covered in his righteousness. God, would you give them faith? Would you move them towards you in faith and repentance today? Father, for those of us who who claim your name, Father, I pray that we would just find ourselves overjoyed at what you've done yet again. Amazed that even though we deserve your judgment because of our willful rebellion against you, you are a God of grace, sovereignly orchestrating our our rescue. We realize we can't save ourselves and we realize that we've been plucked from the fire by your gracious hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. God, we give you praise and we give you thanks and we give you glory for what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. God, may we spend all our days loving him and serving him and worshiping him, waiting for that blessed day when he will come again and bring us to himself. And that blessed day, Lord, when we have awaiting us, when there will be a day no longer when there will be things cursed, but a day that awaits us when all will be perfect, paradise will be restored, and we will be with you forever and ever. God, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.